is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays jumpers, Jaron Jackson Juniors, John Morantz, Joe Johnsons, John Raffs, of course. We've got Jays. We got them for Jays. Josh, how you doing? Are you recovered from the sports weekend to end all sports weekends? I think I think I woke up this morning and my heartbeat had returned to a resting heart rate. To think, but I think it took a good. I think a, I think it took a good twenty four hours after the conclusion of the World Cup final on Sunday morning to to fully re- return to my state of um, calmness. Because that was normalcy. That was right. Normalcy. That's a good word for it. Um, but yes, crazy weekend that had maybe one of. I mean, I you would know better than me. It certainly seems hard to believe that there are that many soccer games that have ever been played that have been as like captivating as that one. I'm sure I mean like the first 80 minutes were fairly lopsided but the yeah. last 40 the last 40 minutes to be played were truly electric and um I was we were locked in the entire country <laughs> and the entire world was locked into that game. Yeah, that's my that's my one thing call it a hot take if you want. I mean, it was great drama, don't get me wrong and I'm happy people who don't appreciate the sport realized how entertaining it can be. The idea that that was the best game ever, it didn't It didn't even reach MLS Cup Final this year because it was the exact same thing for 120 minutes where you didn't know what was happening next, not 40. It was, I mean, mm-hmm. it was terrific, obviously. But yeah, the, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's my thing too, is the fact that the first 80 were not that interesting has to be part of the story here. But sure. It was, yeah. Well, then, then can we at least say it was like... One of the greatest chunks of forty minutes ever. Oh, oh, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Can we say oh, that yeah. at least? And that usually point. those, I mean, usually those finals are not aesthetically pleasing, so, right? And right. it was up there in terms of for that kind of stage, that kind of game with so much on the line. It was definitely an all timer. Just and, I feel and, like it's it's getting a little overhyped. That's very on brand for you to be to to feel like that game was a little bit overhyped, but I know exactly why you think it was a little bit overhyped. They, you know, and Fox Fox pushed it pretty much the whole game. This idea of either Mbappe taking the crown from Messi or Messi handing it over as he's winning a World Cup, I kind of think both managed to happen. I mean, of course, what they were getting at was is Mbappe going to win the World Cup and stop Messi in his last attempt to get one. Or is Messi going to win one and then kind of ride off into the sunset in terms of international, um, in terms of international play? I kind of feel like both managed to happen, even though yeah. Messi Messi won it. That it's it's kind of it's it's really clear just how just how good that dude is. Uh, that dude being Mbappe because he was, I mean, that poor guy carried an entire country put four four different balls in the back of the net in the same in the same world cup granted only right pks don't count as official goals right no not i, I didn't think so right yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think so but but four balls off the off that kid's foot went into the back of the net in the same soccer game and that was yeah it was truly truly impressive yeah my my, my real takeaway is 
transitioning this this back to college basketball. I'm just thrilled we don't have to sit here talking about what this means for Messi's legacy that he didn't win a single elimination tournament in which his mm-hmm. team dominated for 80 minutes, just right. like against you know the best player in the world. Just like we don't have to sit here, or I try not to sit here and relitigate NCAA tournaments based on mm-hmm. and seasons based on NCAA tournaments. Well, words are difficult to put together at the moment that was kind of where my head went is i'm just really glad we don't have to have that conversation because i was going to be real heated just the same way i have after every single ncaa tournament Hmm. so it all worked out there you go uh it was a a, an entertaining weekend on the college basketball front as well if if nothing else there were an alarming amount of top 20 games i think i saw on twitter somewhere (laughs) that that it was the the first day in like 15 years that five top 20 games were happening on the same day. And it could have been six, like North Carolina played a top 25 team and yep. like the, and UNC was not, was not ranked in the game, but it was a, it was a really good college basketball weekend as well. Some of the games were certainly entertaining. Some of them uh, not quite as competitive as, Maybe we were hoping, but for the most part, there were intriguing, entertaining basketball games that were played over the weekend, which means we got plenty to talk about to try to tackle the weekend. We're going to do we're going to do three takeaways each, uh, and that's going to be the, the main chunk of the pod. But of course, it is one thirteen on a Monday afternoon, and this is the first time we're podcasting this week. So if you've been here once or twice, you know that this is where we do winners and losers every Monday during the college basketball season up until the point where it's obvious who was a winner and who was a loser because one team is still playing and the other is not. So this was not one of those weekends. All of these teams will play again this week at some point. So as a result, here we are doing winners and losers. Josh, who is your winner from the last week? My winner is UCLA and I'm not going to get too much into it because we can talk about, you know, that game in the context of takeaways and that kind of thing. I'm much more interested just in the overall week UCLA had and what it means. Beat Maryland at Maryland by 27. Jalen Clark nearly outscored the Terrapins by himself in the first half. Mm -hmm. Then go and beat Kentucky by 10 in a game they dominated for large portions. That should have ended in a double-digit victory, like it did. And, by the way, up to third in Ken Palm. And really, for me, what this is, is you look at UCLA's schedule before this week and the two really good teams they played, Illinois and Baylor, they lost to both of them. Mm-hmm. That was the, you know, the MTE where one of those teams had to lose twice because it was four really good teams. And it's not like UCLA got blown out of that tournament or anything. They just happened to be on the, the wrong end of both of those games. Mm-hmm. So to get a Maryland win and a Kentucky win, are they the best wins in the world? No. But for a team playing in the playing in the Pac-12 outside of Arizona, those are going to be two of your better wins, at least two of your better opportunities remaining to get wins. And, you know, in this season where Kentucky's been disappointing, Baylor, I'm just sort of thinking of teams off the top of my head, feel free to jump in. Baylor's been fairly disappointing. Creighton has fallen off the face of the earth. We'll get to them in a minute. You know, so in Gonzaga, there are all these teams that were kind of in that top five to top 15 range preseason that haven't exactly lived up to expectations so far. Mm -hmm. And 
UCLA is looking awfully good. As a, you know, right, we kind of came in talking about what what exactly is this team ceiling? Can they be a top 10 team? And they're certainly headed in that direction and playing really good basketball. So just from a, a resume standpoint, UCLA did to me more than anybody else in the country to change where they are at this moment in time. I feel like you just undersold their week. You said, uh, these, I mean, could were they the best wins of all time? No, they beat a top 30 Kim Pom team on the road and beat Kentucky, who was eighth at Kim Pom entering the game on a neutral site. I like, I'm not sure there will be a team who has a single better week the rest of the season. Like they're going to have to beat two really, really good teams. I mean, we're talking about in the big 12, somebody beating Texas and Baylor in the same week in the big 10, someone beating Illinois and Purdue in the same week. Um, like, of course, I guess I'm just concerned that Mar- that Maryland loss is not or that Maryland win is not going to look as impressive by the time we get to March. That's there the might be some happen. legitimacy maybe- to that, but they've also like they've played Tennessee and you like they've lost three in a row, but like Tennessee is a top 10 team in the country and UCLA is too. Yeah. So if they're only yeah. losing to top 10 teams in the country, like granted, they lost to Wisconsin, right. but winning in Madison is no easy feat for anybody. Yeah. No, um, they're a good, they're a good big 10 team. Yeah. Uh, but so they're my winner as well, but I, I think that's a, a really, really, really good week. I mean, there are lots of teams who will beat a really good team and then beat a team. They should beat a lot of weeks like that'll happen plenty mm-hmm. of times, but for UCLA to, I mean, I'm, I'm not expecting I mean, and the also the way that they won, they wanted they didn't just yes. go into Maryland and won. They went right. into Maryland and won by twenty seven. Yeah, and and then they handled Kentucky on a neutral court. Um, I'm sure if we're not if we don't talk about Kentucky by the end of the podcast, we should probably talk about Kentucky at some point in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but either way, uh, that's that's a team that in theory is competing for an SEC title in one way shape or or form Mm -hmm. and yeah in terms of right this was one of those weeks that not very many teams played two games and especially not two games against two high quality opponents ucla did do that and and beat them both and beat them both pretty handily and neither of them were inside poly pavilion which i think is uh also something that needs to be to be recognized as well yeah the the other thing i was gonna throw out there was the right the way that they did it, kind of from a metrics Kempom standpoint, that might end up being the best. To me, that's where it really stood out and where you might come back saying that's as good of a week as anybody had all season was not just the wins they had, but the manner in which they dominated both of those games. So, yeah, I was going to point that out, but you beat me to it. And the last thing is that I'm pretty sure UCLA didn't have a quad one win until until this week. I'm pretty sure um, they're two and two, and I can't imagine that both of those wins weren't quad one. I don't know off the top of my head, but um I mean those would be the four best sh- teams they played were those two right. wins and the two losses they had. So Exactly. Um anyways, Maryland's thirty fifth, so that would have absolutely been a quad one win. Um and I'm sure Kentucky is Yes. So both were quad one wins. So from a from a team sheet perspective as well. That was a very good week for for the Bruins. Who's your loser? Creighton. <laughs> the poor Blue Jays, man. I, I mean, they lost to, at Arizona State, and they lost to Marquette, 
So it's not like the sky is falling. That's the first thing I do want to say is they have one bad loss all season. And the best player is hurt. Right. However, they also haven't won a basketball game since November 22nd. Right. And Ryan Kalkbrenner played in three of those six losses that they've yes. had consecutively here. It's not like he was gone for the whole thing. Now, he was gone for some of the quote-unquote worst losses in that stretch. And clearly they need him back because they are not the same team without him. You know, they're they're not getting offensive rebounds. They're not getting to the free throw line. Their defense is not as good as I thought it was going to be, which certainly Ryan, <laughs> the best defender in the Big East not being there, has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. So this is more just from a resume standpoint of you can only lose so many games against, you know, good, not great teams and still get to where Creighton was supposed to be even, you know, a a three or four seed by the end of this, because now you're staring at a Big East schedule. They're going to lose games regardless of how well they're playing because the Big East is a good conference and, you know, Mm -hmm. UConn exists. (laughs) So that's really where the, the loser part of this comes in for me and the fact that I mean, they had a 10-point lead with 13 minutes left against Arizona State. It's not like they're getting blown out in these games, and I really just would love to see them win a couple of them. (laughs) I don't think that's too much to ask with the talent outside of Kulkbrenner. And then the final thing I'll throw out there is I am still not worried. I am not backing down from how high I am on this team, assuming Kulkbrenner comes back and looks like himself before it's too late. I'm not giving up on them. They're just not good (laughs) right now. You would think that, at least initially, the thought would be, man, their defense must just be way worse without him. It's not. It's not way worse without him. Teams are shooting, I think, like a percent and a half better from the field the last in the six-game losing streak. And I don't know specifically in the last three that he's missed, but like, right, BYU had 83, so I'm sure it wasn't great. But Arizona State only had 73, and Marquette only had 69. So it, it can't have been too too horrible but offensively it's been a train wreck without him i mean they're shooting like 12 percent worse from the three-point line they're shooting 12 percent worse from the field i think it went from like 50 no it went from 45 to 39 and 37 to 29 in terms of percentages so he's just kind of the foundation of everything they do on both ends of the floor and to your yep. point about not giving up on them, like, yes, they've lost six in a row. You know what those first two games were that Cockburner was a part of? And then, you know, he <laughs> lost to Nebraska. But, like, they lost to Arizona right. and Texas. Right. Like, right. Creighton is not better had, than either was, of those teams with Cockburner. Right. They're not better than either right. of them. Right. So I had zero concerns after that. Right. And you lost to BYU and Arizona State by a total of five points. Marquette, you just kind of got handled. Marquette was the better team for 40 minutes in that game. Um, So to your point, I'm not – I would like to see a team that fancies themselves as a Final Four contender to be a little bit more capable of getting wins without Ryan Kalkbrenner, at least in theory, especially when their perimeter guys are who they are. Yeah. but there, it just hasn't quite been that way. So I would would have liked to see them find a way to get you know to go two and four in this stretch instead of zero right. and six. Exactly. But at the end of the day, and it would be different. I mean, but like with Cochran, they have an Arkansas win. 
right? I mean, mm-hmm. with Kalkbrenner, they have a Texas Tech win. So clearly they're capable of beating high-quality basketball teams, even when, it, you know, when Kalkbrenner's on the floor. Um, I just hope that he gets back before... I mean, right, they play UConn on January 7th, and they, like, they're like they probably not going to win that one. That's on the road against the best team in the country, for my money. But they're going to lose plenty of games in the Big East because that's just what you do in a conference like that. But at the same time, the ceiling of wins in the Big East outside of UConn right now is not very high, right? There are not very many wins that are going to completely, that, that are going to really strengthen your resume mm-hmm. on a you know, especially at home, right? Like you beat UConn anywhere. That's a, that's a foundational resume win, but a lot of these teams, you beat them at home. It's a quad two win at best. And you're really, you really need to to do well on the road to get a lot of these quad one wins this year in that conference, which is fine. That's how mm-hmm. it is in, in lots of conferences, but it's not like you're going to have three chances at home to beat teams that are going to be top three seeds in, in, in the NCAA tournament, at least not at this point. Yeah. You're, you're in trouble if you're not beating the Marquette's Xavier's St. John's Butler, whoever you want to throw out there, that sort of second tier of the conference, because you're six and six right now, right? You've got to consistently win those games to have, to get anywhere close to a record like, Creighton is capable of having and there were always going to be losses because that's an awfully difficult schedule they've played and now they don't have Kalkbrenner for part of it and they lost a couple games they probably shouldn't have not the end of the world but yeah you gotta at some point you actually have to put W's in the on the schedule or it's going to be real tricky come those last couple weeks when you're trying to make sure you even get into the tournament if you're floating around 500 still right because now now you have to go like just to get to 20 wins, you have to go 14 and and 6 in the Big East. Right. Just to get to 20. Right. Right. That and is really 14 pretty, and 5. That, right. Right. Because um, they already lost to, to Marquette. Oh, sorry. No, 14 and 5. You're right. My bad. Um, yes, 14 and 5. You've got to win 14 of your next 19 against a power conference schedule. Right. To just get to 20 right. wins. To not get to 25. To not get to get to 24. To get to 20. And that's like, like, that's the conversation I've been having recently about Butler is, is, Hey, can they get to 20 wins in conference? Like with their conference schedule, finished eight and three, like, like for Creighton to need 14 wins to kind of be in that same ballpark at the very least, that's not where we thought that we were going to be talking about Creighton, Yeah, you know, even, even a month ago, much less when, when the season started, um, my loser is Notre Dame. Um, this week, Notre Dame, you know, they, they have one good win and it was at home against Michigan state and Michigan state is not exactly terrifying anybody right now. Um, they had two chances to get like decent wins this week. They had Marquette at home, which is, which would have been a good win. And they had Georgia semi away. They played Georgia in Atlanta as part of holiday hoops giving. Do you know that was the thing? Holiday hoops no. giving. Um, well, well, it is, and they were a part of it, and they went and got they got smacked by Georgia. Um, so, zero two this week, and here's where really just what I wanted to highlight: um, the Irish are 181st in the net. They dropped 17 spots from pre- from their previous spot. They're sandwiched in between Sacramento State and South Dakota State. Those are two teams that combined are like four and five against quad three teams, and one of them has a quad four loss. Um, 
They started 41st at Kempom. This morning, they're 102nd. Jeez. That's a really, really... And, like, this is a team that, you know, they had some five-star talent, J.J. Starling. They had two guys coming back on the perimeter that you felt really good about, you know, starting with Cormac Ryan. And then Nate Lazuski in the interior, yeah. like that guy's a bucket and that guy's, that's a guy, that guy's a really, really good college front court player. And the, the on paper, this team should be way better than a team who that's dropped 70 spots at Kempom. Right. I mean, that is not something I was expecting to see from Notre Dame before we got to ACC play. And the reality of the situation, in the ACC is, as we've talked about, there ain't a whole lot of, there ain't a whole lot of chances outside of, you know, Duke, UNC and North Carolina. So, ooh. Duke, UNC, and North Carolina, nice. Um, Duke, UNC, and Virginia uh, to get quality wins there. The 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 table kind of falls out from from under you fast when it comes to quality wins after those three teams, and they right they got a fine win, but they also they have a loss to St. Bonaventure, who is not like who is not St. Bonaventure this year, right? They're just not a very good team at this point. But now they have losses to St. Bonaventure. Syracuse, Marquette, and Georgia with their best win coming against Michigan State. And 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 that's about it. Like they're they're really, really bad defensively. They're outside of the top two twenty nationally. Top forty offense at Kempom. They 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 do score the basketball pretty well. It's just it's it's a pretty unbalanced product in South Bend right now. And they had a chance to kind of put themselves in a better position this week. Right, not two world-beating wins. Georgia is just barely inside the top 100. Marquette would have been a really nice one to get at home, and they didn't do it. They lost 79 to 64 and 77 to 62, so they didn't come especially close. So um, they're my loser this week. Uh, kind of throw the Irish in there as part of our conversation at one point or another this season, because um, unless they do something pretty pretty special in ACC play and and push that 14 win, 15 win area i mean maybe 12 or 13 get you into the conversation in terms of bubble teams but if you lose to the wrong teams and you get 12 wins um it's going to be hard to see them with a resume that's going to get them into the tournament in an at-large capacity so the irish and mike brace squad uh they're my loser this week it is amazing how history is just kind of repeating itself it feels like with that program where yeah you look at it i mean we talked about it with the acc preview Really like those pieces. That's a good basketball team. Mike Bray's a good coach, and it's just not happening. <laughs> okay, let's move to takeaways, um, specifically from the weekend, uh, really just trying to touch on as many things as possible. Um, there's a rumor that Josh wants me to go first, so I'm going to go first um, because he's, he, he, he has a malleability and adaptability coming into the pod that I do not. Um, so we'll put him in the best spot for success while also putting me in the best spot for success. So I'm going to go first and I'm going to start very simply with, Hey, UNC is pretty good when Armando Baycott is the center of your offense. How about that? Um, Armando Baycott 28 and 15 against Ohio state, um, 89, 84 win for the Tar Heels. Um, the most shots he's taken in a game this year by three. Um, 16 was his most that he had taken up until this point. He took 19 was 11 of 19 from the floor. Um, that's 57% uh, in percentage form. If you'd like to know, um, Caleb love still managed to take more shots than he did, but only by one, which is better than it usually is. And the Tar Heels beat a good team despite going six of 28 from the three point line and Pete Nance being pretty much useless. Like 
this isn't hard. Like, you have a guy who was, like, Baycott was the preseason All-American on your team, and you would have thought it was the two guards, and especially Caleb Love, the way that things have functioned offensively for the Tar Heels. So it's almost like when you run it through a guy who's really, really hard to stop, and you let him shoot it 19 times right in front of the rim, that your offense gets much more efficient. Um, That's my first takeaway. I mean, at some point, maybe we can actually get it through their heads on a regular basis, but they didn't shoot it well, especially outside of him. It's not like Caleb Love. Caleb Love had 22 points, but it took him 20 shots to get there. Like, he was fine, but he wasn't. He was like 4 of 13 from the three-point line. So it's like it was a very Caleb Love high-volume, low-efficiency game. But Baycott was spectacular, and they were able to beat a quality team in in Ohio State on on a neutral court. So that's number one. Maybe we should run through the best player on your roster. Just a thought. Yeah, you hit on a couple of the things I wanted to highlight in this game. One was, right, 21% from three. Still scored 79 points in regulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not always going to be a good three-point shooting team because, by and large, they're not great three-point shooters. They're guys who can shoot threes and do take a lot of them. But you can't just say, well, let's try and shoot 40% from three and hope that R.J. Davis and Caleb Love are 45% combined from the field or something like that. Mm -hmm. You almost got to 80 points in regulation without the three-pointer working for you because Armando Baycott was that good and that efficient. That speaks tremendous volumes about the all the stuff we've been saying and this was just proof of concept that this is the best way to run your offense the second thing from a just an overall standpoint not only armando baycott being kind of the focal point of the offense for what feels like the first time this season but also the fact that pete nance had the buzzer beater you know the last second possession to force overtime drawn up for him This idea that you don't have to run everything through your two guards. You can give the ball to Baycott. You have a fourth guy in Pete Nance who can go beat players one-on-one, who can get his shot off, who is difficult to guard, and has that isolation ability as well that you saw to force overtime. You, You don't need Pete Nance scoring 20 points a game. He's definitely struggled at times this season. But utilizing that weapon... When everybody knows you have Love, you have Davis, you have Baycott. Okay, so we're going to throw the ball to Pete Nance because you're not paying attention to him on the last possession because there are three other guys you need to be paying attention to. Using all of that is what is going to get this team back to a conversation where we can talk about them making the Final Four and get them looking like the team most people thought they were going to be this season. you got to find a way to use everybody, and they did a much better job of it in this game. That's all I got. It's very, very simple. Just yeah. give give the dude the basketball. Literally every time he touches the basketball, he's still shooting. He's still, like, his numbers have not really dropped in any efficiency ways this year. I think he's shooting, like, a percent and a half worse from the field than he was last year. But same dude. Same dude. Like, just give him the basketball. It makes And it will make your life at yep. Caleb Love that much easier if you just give the dude the basketball. Because he's really, really hard to stop. And the more they have to worry about him, the less they have to worry about you. And that's good for everybody. So, good for the Tar Heels. Now you have a resume-building win for the first time this season. Good job. Well done by you. Good job by you. 
What's uh? What say you? What's your first takeaway? Give it to me. Right, let's start with Houston. Okay. Uh, there is no need to be worried about the Cougars. <laughs> Not that they're necessarily. That's bold, that's was, bold by you, Josh. That's I bold know, right? by you. I Not that know. there necessarily was going into this game, but I was very curious what kind of response we were going to get because we really picked at the flaws of this team over the last week, and then they mm-hmm. went out there and they just kind of handled Virginia on Virginia's home floor. I still have the same questions in terms of whether this team can win a national championship. They're going to be vulnerable when Marcus Sasser doesn't have a good game and when they don't force turnovers. However, those two things both happened in this game, and they still won because of their defense, because Jairus Mm -hmm. Walker was terrific, because they were the tougher, more focused team playing with a greater sense of urgency. They were so good, it makes me really feel pretty confident that the series of events that unfolded in that loss to Alabama were an aberration. And we were kind of talking about this, this idea of was that this really weird collection of events or is that something other teams can replicate and try and get at Houston the same way Alabama did? Now, Virginia's personnel is not Alabama's personnel. It does not set itself up to be able to exploit Houston the way that Alabama did. So not that that's completely out of the question that somebody else could find a way to do it. But I, I walked away from this game going, yeah, they really are every bit as good as I thought, despite some of the, I mean, not that they've struggled this season, but there were questions and I still had the same concerns, but I have concerns about just, just about every team in the country. So that certainly doesn't disqualify from being one of the five best teams in the nation. And they looked awfully, awfully good. So I'm, I feel much more comfortable about Houston now. I feel comfortable about Houston as long as the, everybody not named Mac, Marcus Sasser shoots better than 50% from the floor. Like, that's what happened. I mean, the dude is still 6 of 25 against Virginia and Alabama this season. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm, like that dude has to be better against the best teams that they play. Respectfully. To win a national championship. To. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, yes. sure. Yeah, they're, that question isn't that question isn't going to go away. Right. And, and everybody right, right. Like literally everybody else was better than 50% from the field. Jarris Walker was 6 of 11. Um Juan Roberts was 5 of 7. Traymond Mark was 3 of 6. Uh Jamal Shedd was 5 of 9 and the two guys off the bench who made baskets were both 1 of 1 from the field. So like they shot 50% as a team because literally everybody else was efficient. So as as long as like some combination of of those things happen, you know, hopefully you're you don't want Marcus Sasser to be four or fourteen from the field. But on the nights that he is four or fourteen from the field, as long as the other guys pick up the slack, um, then you're in a pretty good spot. But like Sasser hasn't had more than six field goals in a game since February 29th. So like I like I am like I do need him to be more efficient. I do I like I do need that. And like he was six of ten from the field against North Carolina A and T, but like congratulations, I could have been six of ten from the field against North Carolina A and T. Um so that is the only I agree with you. I did not ex- like for the most part in that second half, I felt like Houston was able to get what they wanted at John Paul John Paul Jones Arena against Virginia and I was not expecting that to be the case after what I saw in the second half against Alabama so from that perspective 
Absolutely. And I wasn't like, I wasn't really concerned about Houston, but that's, right. the, that's what we're talking about when it comes to Houston right yeah. now is what are the things that are going to stop them from winning a national championship, which is mm-hmm. the highest form of praise, right? It's not, yep. well, that's going to stop them from going 11 and nine in AAC play. No, it's like that might stop them from, from winning a final four game. Like that's what we're talking about. And, and that's a pretty good place to be. Uh, but I think you're right. I think we can, pump the brakes a little bit on and and, and not that either of of us were out on Houston, but there were certainly some questions that we had, I think. And I still think rightfully so. Yeah. But some of those things were, were kind of uh, laid to rest at least for the time being with, with a win like that, because that's a tough one to get. And they, after the, after the first like 10 minutes of the game, I think at one point I, I turned to you and said, man, it just yep. like looks so difficult for Houston when Marcus yep. Sasser isn't making shots. And then yep. pretty much for the rest of the game after that, after that guys not named Marcus Sasser were making shots and it looked yep. a lot easier. So, yeah, right. that's exactly where I'm coming from. This idea that I was starting to wonder if we need to have a conversation about whether Houston was really one of the five best teams in the country, sure. whether they were a little bit that, the idea of okay, Marcus Sasser is going to be the best guard in the country. That's that, and their defense is going to be why you know they're going to beat top five all season long. Mm-hmm. I was starting to wonder if that was going to be the case. Like that door had you know that door had opened a little bit, and to me that door is back closed. The other thing I would say is you can also flip that and say the rest of our players are good enough to shoot fifty percent from the field against Virginia at Virginia. Sure. Sure. You know that's part of it too. But I but, but I, I also am, don't think we knew that. I don't think we knew that until. Saturday either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still come down on – I mean, it's going to be the same – we can say the exact same thing every single week until Houston plays in the NCAA tournament. There are flaws. There are ways that they can get beat. They need Marcus Sasser to be one of the best guards in the country to win a national championship to get to a Final Four. That's mm. not going to change for me. But everything no. else I am no longer concerned about. I kind of feel like I know exactly – what Houston is going to be and how I'm going to feel about them heading into the NCAA tournament. I think that's fair. I think they've earned that. Um, okay. Moving right along. I, I number two, here we go. First is first, second is second. Here we go. Um, Indiana is going to win a lot of games this season. I'm not sure they're going to beat any teams. They're not supposed to beat. Um, the way that Indiana play, and they got smacked in the mouth early, which is if you're going to try and go win, against Kansas at Fog Allen Fieldhouse about the worst way to do it is to yep. be down 12 to two before the the, the first media timeout. That's pretty yep. tough. And then to be down 40 to 20 with two minutes to go in the first half. That's pretty, that's pretty in, in terms of like, that's the final boss of trying to beat Kansas at Fog Allen Fieldhouse is spotting them 20 points in the first 18 minutes. Um, but I like, I just don't think like, the way Indiana plays and the way Indiana is structured is just not that conducive to putting together a night, especially on the road, that is going to translate to giving themselves a really good chance to beat a team that maybe they're not supposed to, especially when that other team is just can go toe to toe or is better than them in the talent person in, in the talent category, because Right, they don't shoot a ton of threes. They've been they've been functional from the three point line this year. I think they're eighty yeah. second. I, I think they're eighty second in the country on this Monday morning, December nineteenth, from the three point line. But they're three hundredth in frequency relative to how many field goals they take. So, right, 
they're shooting 36% as a team. That's more than functional. But on most nights, even if they shoot 47% as a team, we're talking like that's six of that's, you know, six of 13 from the three point line, not, not 11 of 23, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like very rarely are they going to take that many three pointers. Yep. Um, and like the reality of the situation is, is that their best player, it's, it's, if you just double team him, you pretty much turn him into a facilitator almost immediately. If you just double team Trace Jackson Davis every time he gets the basketball, and then you're daring everybody else on that team to make shots. Because the unfortunate reality with Trace Jackson Davis is when he sets a pick, you know where he's going. He's never going to pop out. He's going to the rim. And he wants the ball, you know, inside the paint. That's where he wants it. And and from a scheming perspective, for a guy, right, Trace Jackson, I am a, I am a Trace Jackson Davis truther, believer, whatever word you want to use. But the reality of the situation is, is in the hierarchy of the best players in the sport, which he, which is what he is. He's one of the best players in the sport. When it comes to game planning to try and stop him, the, 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 the stencil to do it, the outline to do it is, is pretty, is pretty simple. And if Indiana makes shots around him when he gets double teamed, cause he's a good passer. If, if, they make shots around him, then Indiana is going to have a chance to beat, to beat a lot of teams, but it's really, really dependent on a team that doesn't shoot a ton of threes, making a lot of them and making a lot of out of open perimeter shots around him for them to really go toe to toe with some of the best teams in the country. You know, I, I am, I am a documented, I'm a documented Indiana anti-fan well documented. <laughs> um, it, it, this is this isn't really about Indiana, right? I, I started this with Indiana is going to win a lot of games this season. I still feel that way. I'm just not sure. It's just going to be hard for them to put themselves in a position to beat teams that are better than they are, and that's what Kansas is. Kansas mm-hmm. is better than Indiana is, yep. and it was clear pretty quick. And they got down, and they're not really built to try and come back from from deficits like that. And it just kind of it got you know it got to twelve at a couple points in the second half, but then Kansas would knock down a couple more threes, and then you end up losing by twenty two. Um, that's the takeaway: is Indiana like eighty five, ninety percent of the teams that Indiana plays this year, they're gonna they're they're supposed to beat, and they're gonna beat a lot of those teams. It's when they play teams that they're not supposed to that I'm just don't have a ton of faith in the way that they're built being conducive to kind of pulling off quote unquote upsets. Yeah. And Trace Jackson Davis needs to play like an all American in those games from a box score standpoint. Sure. Sure. That's the other part of this too, right? He struggled against Arizona. He struggled in this game. Right. But it's hard to, when your game is built that way. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I could, like I could have, like he was never going to have a good game against Arizona because right, that right. that might be the best front court in the country, yep. and certainly one of the biggest and most physical yep. front courts in the country. And right. the entire time he's been at Indiana, he has struggled with teams right. that have more size in the front court than him. Right. Um. So we were, that was predict, and we're getting at the same point there, right? Is like you you would you wished he was he could he had more to lean on to have all American type performances in those games, and he mm-hmm. just doesn't. Yeah, which again goes to. There's a ceiling there, and they are very right. They have done a very good job beating the teams they're supposed to this season. 
and then they get some of those difficult games at the rack, Kansas, Arizona, and their flaws get exposed. Because they are making threes. It's not like it's been a train wreck from the three-point line, especially in these last couple games. But you need the threes, and you need Trace Jackson Davis, and you need the defense, and they haven't gotten all of those things together. Yeah, there's a lot that needs to go. Their ceiling is just not exceptionally high, so there's a lot of things that need to go right for them to play with the best teams in the country. Agreed. Com- uh, completely agree. Um, give me another takeaway. You've done one. It's time for your second one. You don't get to do your third one yet. You don't get to do your third one yet. You do your second one. Come on. Bob. I'm going to do my third one second. Mm, well played. Well played. <laughs> and stay with the team we were just talking about. I talk about Arizona for a second because Tommy Lloyd has the best starting five in the country. <laughs> Dude, I think you might be right. <laughs> do you know? How many of Arizona's 75 points the starting lineup scored against Tennessee? 73. 75. Oh, okay. Never mind. They scored literally all the points. And, of course, that's a game at home you expect Arizona to win because Arizona is obviously really good. And I want to sort of take this from the Tennessee standpoint that Tennessee, outside of one important category, had the better game from a box score standpoint. You know, shooting percentage, three-pointers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like Tennessee played poorly. I would argue it was a pretty good performance on the road against a top-10 team that's clearly yeah. going to give you issues. I mean, I walked away thinking that Tennessee is just as much of a top-10 team as, as Arizona is. Exactly. Yeah. So where was the difference in the game? It was that Arizona stepped, attempted 17 more free throws and made 16 more free throws than Tennessee did. Mm. Because they are just so physically imposing, so athletically imposing. Because they have the same group from last year that was so physically and athletically imposing. Right. And they lost, okay, a couple of those guys, specifically in the backcourt with Matherin and Terry. But the five guys, you throw Courtney Ramey in there and those five guys are still awfully, awfully good. And sometimes they don't even need the bench. The bench helps out sometimes. But they can also do what they did in this game and just, you know, even if you get some some steals, some rebounds, some assists from the bench, those five guys can get you enough points by themselves to beat top 10 teams in the country. You, What you said at the beginning of the season continues to be like one of the truer things we've said on the pod. And that's that they had eight or nine like top 10 level starters on that team last year. They lost three of them. That means that the simple math suggests that there are five of them left. They all came back. And what you get is a, is a team that in a lot of ways is just as good as the one who was last year, right? Tommy Lloyd is reloaded in some senses, but retuned in a lot of ways. And some guys are more important this year than they were last year. And right. Tabellis and Ballo are, at least the most efficient front court in the country. I mean, at least at one point recently, Arizona was the number one team in the country in two-point field goals. I mean, those two guys combined to go 13 of 21. So I can't imagine that there was that there was much of a drop after a game like that. Um, I, I like I'm already like 
I'm just kind of expecting at some point in the tournament, and Kurt Crystal wasn't great in this game. He's so annoying to play against, though. I mean, like he just looks like a guy I want to punch in the face if I was the <laughs> if I was on the opposing team for the entire 40 minutes. He was only two of nine in this game. He was one of seven from the three point line. I'm like expecting Kirk Crystal to hit a big three at some point in oh, the NCAA tournament. Like absolutely. it is going to happen, and him yep. with his with his like seemingly pointless like itty bitty headband that he wears, like and and he'll he'll go absolutely crazy and like at some point it's going to happen because it seems like and it felt like this in the in the indiana game as well specifically in the indiana game that he's always there to make a shot when when arizona needs it and right that would be the only not hesitation with arizona but is there are there guys on the perimeter you can go to when you need buckets? And I think the the answer to that question is yes, with the super solid foundation that is your front court. So yeah, they're they're really really good. Air, Tennessee is really really good too. I yep. came away being uh, thinking that both of those teams are are really good, and because I mean Tennessee they didn't shoot it great. They right got dominated at the free throw in the free throw line category and still only lost by five on the road to a to a really really good team and it was tied at halftime so um yeah though both of those teams are really good in arizona you might be right uh my third takeaway is is a little is like in the same vein about a different team but you're you're probably right um they have the best they 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 certainly have the most productive starting five in the country yeah the question is going to be do they have right the shot maker that ben matherin was last year can they get enough from the bench, whatever that ends up needing to be? Because it's such a luxury to have these guys who are now starring for you coming off your bench last season, and then you throw in Courtney Ramey as well as your other addition, and you're just sort of, you know, the three guys in particular, Balo, Krisa, and Larson, you're just throwing them into the starting lineup. That was your bench last season. And those you know that rotation was phenomenal they don't have those kind of difference makers off the bench so i do think their ceiling is it might end up actually working better from a national championship standpoint we'll have to see but from a win standpoint from a seed standpoint from a where are they heading into the ncaa tournament standpoint i do think there's just a a ceiling this team is going to be limited by that last year's team wasn't because you had these pieces plus those other nba guys Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're going to be talking about them as this clear, you know, one of the best two teams in the country, obvious number one seed, maybe the best team in the country heading in. But they got enough to win a national championship. (laughs) I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, My last takeaway is that Adama Sanogo might be the best player in the country and UConn's the best team in the country. That second part is that that second part I'm emphatic about. Sanogo, we can talk about, but that dude is... That dude is the, like, we're going to look up and we're going to be thinking, how in the world did we not talk about that guy more in preseason? Um, because the thing that, that makes UConn so scary is that, like, UConn has one of the best benches in the country, too. And we've talked about this plenty this year, about how it just kind of seems like all of the best teams in the country, you look at their bench production, and it's like, man, I kind of wish we would have gotten more out of the bench on a more consistent basis. Um, they're, of course, they're not at the tippity top of the country in bench minutes because they have a really, really good starting five, but they bring like, they have one of the best big men in the country (laughs) in the starting five. And they have what the 12th best, best big man in the country coming off the bench. 
<laughs> Maybe he cracks the top I mean, ten. I mean, it might I'd be have the to really top ten. Think about it. After once you get after the obvious guys, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, <laughs> right. You you could probably make a list like that's like seven or eight off the top of right, my head. Right. Right. Um, and then after that, I mean, it's I mean, you get to him pretty quickly, and like Sonogo put up twenty eight, twenty seven, and fourteen against Manny Bates, and Manny Bates is. Like no slouch, Manny Bates was a like a block percentage leader at NC State. You know, very like top twenty, I think nineteenth in the country, maybe uh, in his last full year at NC State before being hurt for basically all of last year, except for like the first four minutes of the season. And and is really good. Like he's a good rim protector, just a top defensive big guy. Right? Yeah, that's another guy that is is on that list, and he made. And and Manny Bates wasn't in foul trouble, um, right? That was the big concern for Butler was, hey, are they going to be in foul trouble? And Manny Bates was not in foul trouble. And Snogo just did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted to do it against Butler. And Butler was, for the most part, played UConn pretty evenly. And Snogo, like, they had no chance against Snogo. And things completely changed when he was in the game versus when he wasn't. And... Like that UConn team is so deep on it, it, everywhere, everywhere. Like they, they bring, I think heading into yesterday among Big East teams, they were like second in bench points per game at like a crazy, like, like, like lots of points off the bench per game. And that is one of the few teams in the country right now that I have complete faith in their starting five being elite and also have faith in, the bench production being there when that starting five is not elite. And I'm not sure right now that there's anybody in the country that can stop Sonogo. And, and as a result, I mean, for my money, that team's the best team in the country right now. And I mean, they've been, they're six and zero against top 75 Kempom teams. And they've won those games by an average of 18 points. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. That's, that's crazy. They had, they still have not trailed in the second half this year. And they've played six top 75 Kempom teams and they still haven't trailed for a single second in the second half this year. Um, and they've got wins that continue to keep looking better. Um, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty dominant and uh, it's, it's kind of fun to see a, a team in the big East. That's not named Villanova being, being one of, if not the best teams in the country, but um, yeah, they're legit. They're for real. And Sonogo is, in the driver's seat for one of those for one of those first team all America spots, which is really intriguing because that means like that is not a guy we were talking about being a first team all American. Like I think we, you know, second team, one of the best six or seven big men in the country, and that is a fringe second team guy this year. And he has been really, really spectacular. And Zach Eady's probably the other one yep. right now. I mean, not probably those are the best two bigs Zach, in the country. Right. And and that is both of those guys were talked about, right? But for us to be on December 19th heading into conference play pretty much across the country and those two guys to be the clear cut one and two, when Timmy's been really good, right? We Those Arizona guys have been good. Um, Baycott has been effective when he's been allowed to be effective. Um, it, uh, you know, that's kind of on the peripheral, but UConn, Sonogo, they're, they're really, really good. Yeah. Uh, Butler, I think it cut it to four. I think it was. Yeah, and then Sonogo came back in and he said, okay, boys, 
Yes. I got and this then, under control. And then and immediately then it, got an <laughs> offensive rebound and found Jordan Hawkins cutting, and it was an and one, and they went back up seven immediately. And then he hit a three. And then he hit a three, right. And yeah, then all uh, of a sudden, before you could blink, it, they were up by 11 again. Yep. I really think the only person that can stop <laughs> Sonogo in terms of sort of this National Player of the Year, best bigs in the country thing, is Donovan Klingon. It's the same problem Zach Eady had last season. Mm-hmm. that I think Zach Eady is going to edge him out just because there is no replacement for Zach Eady, where there is a very, very good replacement for Adama Sadoko. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He doesn't have to play 33 minutes a game because Donovan Klingon goes in there and it's just fine. Mm-hmm. That could very well be the difference between those two players at the end of the day because I, th- I think I'm to the point where, yeah, I'm just going to operate under the assumption UConn's going to be the Man, do I think UConn's going to be the better? UConn is going to be every bit as good as Purdue, if not better. I'll put it that way. Okay. So it's not like he's going to need to have, you know, they're the 15th best team in the country. He's going to need to have a, do something to sort of jump Edie as the best player on the best team in the country or something. I'm with you. I've got UConn one. I've got Edie for national player of the year, but that's more because of Donovan Klingon than anybody else. <laughs> that's my third one. UConn's, UConn's scary Indeed. In, in, in pretty much every way you can come up with. I mean, top 25 and two-point field goal percentage, they shoot they shoot as good as you need to to be a national title team. They're 56 in the country in three-point shooting. Um, they're top 15 in both three-point and two-point field goal defense. They're third in defense at Kempom, seventh in offense. Yeah, they don't turn it over all that much. They force plenty of turnovers and you'll be shocked to hear that they are in the upper echelon of both rebounding categories. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm and they're 52nd in the country in bench minutes because their bench comes in and produces. I'm struggling to find, <laughs> I'm struggling to find the issues here with UConn and there aren't any. That's why they're, that's why they're the best team in the country. I have one thought that I will say for a podcast at a later time. Okay. A, okay. a very small pull though. Very small hole to poke potentially. Okay. Fair enough. My final takeaway. Congratulations, Gonzaga, for finally looking like the team I thought they would. It was so refreshing to see them win one of these games because I feel like they win these kind of games time after time, season after season, Mm -hmm. where their defense just isn't very good and it just doesn't matter because they're better offensively. Right. And you look at this season, their defense has been fine. It's been good at times, not so good at others. But when the defense hasn't been great, they're losing, you know, 84 to 68 to the Texases of the world. And so they get six players in double figures. They're 40 to 70 from the field. Really good games from Nolan Hickman and Malachi Smith relative to what's been going on this season. Drew Timmy does Drew Timmy things. Strother gives you his buckets. Rasheer Bolton gives you his. And they get triple digits against the team that just stunned Houston. I'm very curious if this is sustainable. And it's kind of funny that it happened kind of at the end of the stretch of games for Gonzaga where, you know, we don't get to, to see this get replicated really because now you're entering WCC play here. And so it's just, they're going to kind of pop back up and we're going to have to go, well, which Gonzaga are we going to get in the NCAA tournament? Because that team 
that was what I thought Gonzaga was going to look like all season. And it was the first time they looked that way. They just have had some really bad. I mean, we've talked about some of the reasons why, starting with the guard play, right? But they're, they have all these games where they're scoring 65 points. And that's just, that's not what Gonzaga does. This is right. what Gonzaga does. This game reminded me of the game they played against UNC in the COVID year early in the season. I think it was like a 10 it was like a 106 91 game, something like that. Hold on, let me find it. Oh, that's Yukon. I was like, what in the world? They did not go 15 and 8 the COVID year. That's Yukon. Yukon did go 15 and 8 in the COVID year. <laughs> um 2023 Gonzaga back to 2021. Oh, no, I'm thinking the Kansas game, the 102 yes, 90 game yes, that they played yes. against Kansas at the very beginning yep. of the season. Yeah. It felt exactly. very much like that, where, yeah, you'd love for them to be a little bit more effective defensively, but it just didn't matter that Brandon Miller had 36 and 6 on 12 of 22 shooting and 6 of 11 from the three point <laughs> line. Oh, my Lord. Because you just felt like they were going to go and score every time down the floor. I mean, it's almost a carbon copy of that game. The final yep. score of this game was 100 to 90. And even though Alabama got a lot of what they wanted, right? Alabama also shot 51% from the field um, and got to the free throw line 24 times and made 20 of them. But it just never felt like Gonzaga was going to stop scoring. And so they, for the most part, kept them at arm's length. They won both halves by five. You just They just kind of kept scoring. It came from everywhere. Drew Timmy had 29 and 10 and... It, it, you're right. That's a great way to put it. Is that it felt like the Gonzaga, like Gonzaga wins against good teams you were expecting, and that you had seen the last several years. That you just you just have no idea what to do against them defensively because it's coming from everywhere. Um, all five starters were in double figures. Nolan Hickman played his best game of the season, had four assists to zero turnovers, um, and then you got a little something from Malachi Smith off the bench, twelve on five of six shooting. He had five steals in the game. Yeah. Like that, that is what we, we were expecting from Gonzaga and we hadn't seen it against a good team this year and we saw it against, against Alabama. Yeah. A couple things because from the very beginning, the, I remember saying after the Michigan state game, it, it was good. They were that good defensively because that was mm-hmm. the question. I said, I don't care about the fact they didn't score. It was, you know, outside aircraft carrier beginning of the season, they're going to figure it out. And then they just kind of haven't figured it out. So now the question is, did they figure something out in this game or was this game the aberration and they're going to go back to struggling offensively when it matters? We're just going to have to wait and see on that one. The other thing, yeah, you mentioned Brandon Miller. We need to talk about him for a second. (laughs) Uh, Of the college basketball players, I feel most confident about him in terms of the NBA because – you don't find guys who score that easily and play defense that well. He's not a three and D wing. He's a two way star. Yeah. Of which there are about four in the NBA, right? I was trying to think about this. Giannis, Paul George, Kawhi, LeBron. And I would argue LeBron doesn't even count right now because he's not uh, what he was defensively. I think Tatum and Brown both. And that was the other thing I was thinking is, right, you can argue that the Celtics guys have developed mm. to the point defensively or Brown has developed to the point offensively because mm. he was always mm. the better defender at the beginning. That right. right. So maybe they've entered themselves into that conversation. Mm. Yeah. So you've got that, probably five at this moment because yeah. I would take LeBron out. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a fun question. I think Jimmy Butler, at least in the playoffs, deserves oh, to be sure, in that conversation. Sure. Yep. I um, forgot about him. Yep. I think that's about it, though. I think, I think every, I think pretty quickly you get to, man, that guy's a really good defensively, but like, like Michael Bridges is a three and D guy, even though yes. he has shown some, he's definitely shown some creative creativity with the ball in his hands on the offense then, yeah. but still closer to a three and D guy than yep. he is a, a two way star. Um, yep. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you use the, use the term Paul, I mean, use the term Paul George. You mentioned Paul George and I, said to you during you, this game you t- yeah he, you ticked me out of that comparison he, yeah he he looks like you, you add 12 pounds of muscle to him and he looks like i mean he just looks as big and i don't know what it is about paul george but paul george just looks huge on the floor <laughs> I, and i don't really know what it is it's just like it's a different kind of big than Kawhi because Kawhi is just like all arms and legs and his fingers go down to his kneecaps and yeah like it's it, but paul george is just like man that guy is huge and so physically imposing. And w- when you look at Brandon Miller and right, of course, like every single college player, when you, when his job is to literally do nothing but play basketball and prepare to play basketball, he's going to gain 12 pounds of muscle before he plays in this first NBA game. But he is, he is, and, you know, I, he, I see a lot of Jabari Smith, like comps and, because like on on the surface he's a guy like he and Jabari Smith on the surface are like look similar and they both like are super dangerous from the three point line and both really good defensively but it doesn't take long to watch him my point being is that i i i had my hesitations about Jabari Smith as a creator off the bounce because everything he did offensively was either just shooting or it was very simple, like one dribble moves and he was just taller than his defender. So he could right. get it off all incredibly right. all, like a very important skill to have in the NBA. Right. Um, but Brandon Miller moves differently than Jabari Smith does and has a bag that already that Jabari Smith might never have when it comes to the NBA. Um, he is. Yeah. He's scary. Super, super scary. Yeah, that's a difference between. Yeah, I, don't, I guess I just have a fundamental issue with that comparison because Brandon Miller is not taller than anybody else. He's certainly tall enough, but right, he's not shooting over people the way Jabari Smith is. He is much more in the. It's the difference between Kevin Durant and Paul George. I really like the Paul George comparison. I'm just going to keep using it because there are right there are about seven of these guys at any given point in the NBA, and maybe that's even generous. Mm-hmm. He, the things he can do for you is, are remarkable on both ends of the floor. I am really excited to see what he becomes in the NBA because I feel like he's got a really high floor and a really high ceiling because you got to figure something's going to translate and it might all translate. <laughs> he is, he's, he's also, he's a prospect that I don't think we've had in a little while. From a like, it, it seems like a lot of prospects that we get super excited about at this point are really tall and lanky. Like we're talking, mm-hmm. we're talking Chet Holmgren, Victor Wembanyama, or their guards like Nick Smith Jr., Scoot Henderson. Like I and and I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but like there just hasn't been a guy 
and, and Paul George wasn't supposed to be, I mean, nobody's ever supposed to be what Paul George has turned into, right? right I mean, right. nobody, you know, LeBron has turned into exactly what people thought LeBron was going to turn into, but that's like very few and far between. There, we're, we're usually having a, oh my gosh, can you believe what he's turned into? Rather than, yeah, that guy is a top five player in the league and is exactly what we thought he was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and if you've got one off the top of your head, please please throw it out there but like i don't i don't it's been a while since we've had a guy that's as offensively skilled and doesn't have any obvious limitations and is built like brandon miller is like six nine two hundred is what he's listed at right now and in three years he'll be six nine you know 220 and that is like that is the epitome of a of a two-way wing i guess jason tatum would be like the most recent guy um yeah, but he wasn't there defensively. You're you're probably right. I don't think he was there defensively the, at that point. At on, that point, either. On the other end, I would throw out Scotty Barnes, who, sure, was there defensively, but I would still argue doesn't have. And now he's turned into a very good offensive player in the NBA, even better than I thought, and I was really high on him. But still, he doesn't have the offensive game that Brandon Miller does. Right. Right. In terms of uh, all of the different things, the shooting. Yeah. No, I. I can't think of somebody that was this complete on both ends of the floor. And and what I was getting at is, uh, eventually was like I really I really don't understand how like with the hype around like Wembenyama is going to go number one overall, and Scoot is probably going to go number two. Like I'm not sure. Like there's Brandon Miller would have to do something really really special for him to surpass those two guys, I think. But I like, I really don't understand how you get to anybody at three before you get to Brandon Miller, <laughs> at least right now. Um, it's just like, like the limitations he has, has in the NBA. Like the list is really, really short. If, if not non-existent right now, right. The, you can't talk about his size because he's six, nine. You can't talk about his shooting because he's shooting 47 and a half percent from the three point line. <laughs> You can't talk about his defense because he's the best defender on that Alabama team and has the like the only thing you need to make sure he has on a night and out basis night in night and night out basis is effort and he'll be able to guard all five spots. That's like that's the only thing that we and and not to suggest that he doesn't have the effort. That's just like the only thing that could stop him from being an elite NBA defender. If he, he gets to the NBA and decides he just doesn't want to try that hard all the time, which he wouldn't he certainly would not be the first. Um but yeah, I, at this point, I don't understand how you get to anybody else before you get to him at three. And I think like we might get to a point by the end of the season where we're having a very real conversation between him and Scoot at two because of how, because of the performance he puts together at Alabama. So I hope that he, you know, as they get into SEC play, as we get deeper into the season, that right right now it's twenty eight and two. He's only played eight games, but it's twenty eight and two. Um, that's a uh, that's that's pretty elite company in terms of college stats so far for, for Brandon Miller. Yeah. <laughs> that was an, unex- that was an unexpected um, gushing session on, on Brandon Miller. I was not, I was not ready for that today, um, but I'm glad we did it. We needed to talk about him at some point um, on a, on a more extensive basis than that. And so I'm glad we, we got to that as well. Uh, anything else? I believe that's three for both of us. Um, if my math is correct, do you have anything else you'd like to get to before we get out of here? Yeah. I mean, on Kentucky, 
Oh, yeah. I, I didn't include them in my takeaways because I didn't have any new takeaways. Sure. Because it's the same problems. Shooting, turnovers, not getting the pieces to work together. They found a way to get more from everybody else against Michigan, but when they play the best teams in the country, I mean, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but their record against ranked opponents recently is staggeringly bad. Yeah. They're just getting exposed when the the teams they're playing have, and it's not like that, you know, only so many teams have an Oscar Sheboy, but when they have a Jaime Hawkes with the size of an autumn bona to at least bother him a little bit. And, you know, Amadi Sissoko to bother him I'm trying to think of some of the other teams Kentucky has played. They just, they're not getting enough from everybody else. And mm-hmm. really they're not what they're the specific group. They're not getting enough from is the non freshman, non Sheboy players because the guys know, who Livingston, are brought in to be the three point shooters. Right. And Jacob Toppin, I would argue too. Mm, Fair. Right. That you were kind of hoping he was going to take this next step and he's just kind of still the same player he was, which isn't a bad thing. But Chris Livingston had a good game. Kaysen Wallace has been good. Yep. And I'll throw Safi or Whittle in that list too, of guys you need more from. Right. It's Frederick, it's Reeves, it's Wheeler. That they're just not making the kind of difference they need to. And so when you have other teams with capable of putting, you know, three of the five, three of the four best players on the floor on a given day and an offense where you know that it's going to be run effectively because Tiger Campbell just lives and breathes effective offense, you're in trouble. And that game probably shouldn't even have been as close as it was. The dangerous part about that is that those guys that you just listed, at least a good chunk of them, 66% 66% of them, Antonio Reeves and CJ Frederick. What will you what do they do when they're not making shots? Yeah. I'll take your silence as the point I'm trying to make. Is that they don't no, do right. anything if they're not making shots. Right. Right. Um and that's right. Those are two right, I'm not back at like those are two elite shooters. They are, but when they don't shoot it well and those are the type of players that are rounding out your team, then it becomes difficult quickly, right? Because you need them out there to make Oscar Shibwe's life easier. But if they're not making their shots, then they're not especially making Oscar Shibwe's life any easier. And it's not like they're locking down guys on the other end of the floor. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything especially – I think there was more of a recognition of what happened to Kentucky. Uh, and yeah. I saw someone tweet that I think people are – I think Kentucky fans are just tired of getting excited about these big games and then losing them and not coming especially close to winning them. And mm-hmm. that's that can be – that can be um, – that can be a daunting realization for a fan base to to just kind of get hyped over and over again to to then go and lose to to another good team. So, yeah. I believe that's it. I got nothing else. Are you out? I am out. Perfect. Hey, um, next next Jays for Days podcast, December 29th. Today is Monday the 19th. The next pod will be December 29th. 
traveling traveling stuff at the end of this week um christmas of course at the beginning of next um and family holidays so we'll take take a small break here we'll come back on december 29th and talk about whatever there needs to be talked about it's a relatively quiet you know 10 days as a result because of christmas but anything exciting that has happened in the 10 days or so we will talk about and uh, as we dive into the nitty gritty that is that is conference play in this portion of the schedule so next pod on december 29th that is a thursday that's all the housekeeping any other housekeeping i don't think so watch subscribe on youtube yeah all that's of those my housekeeping things. that's your housekeeping um Please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, Jays for Days Podcast. Search it up. You'll find it. It'll be great. It'll be great. And uh, we'll see you 10 days from now. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days Podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. And we will see you later.